Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 10, the early edition of G News for June 2018, in which we'll be discussing some TV and movie news, along with a couple follow-up items from last month. Yes, that's right, including the bonus item that we have for you in this episode, and that's an interview with Fiona Shaw of Killing Eve, a show that I talked about in the last edition of G News. And this is a show I've really been enjoying on BBC America, and Fiona Shaw is a big part of my enjoyment of that show. So I hope you guys will enjoy that. Just a quick note about that, though. If you are going to listen to the interview, it is spoilery for season one of Killing Eve. So you'll definitely want to watch the show before you listen to the interview. But we've got a lot of spoiler-free news for you this week. So let's go ahead and dive into the news for June. All right, Mike, though the end of HBO's Game of Thrones is clearly in sight, that doesn't mean George R.R. Martin is quite finished with this premier network. So commissioning the development of five separate pilots, all potential sequels set in the Westeros universe, the network is gambling that fans of Martin's world are going to hunger for more. And look, you and I both know they're going to if they produced all five. They would all be hits, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the news that has been coming around, aside from the one you're about to talk about, has been a little bit like, well, this one's dropping by the wayside. That that one's not really being fleshed out, but this one is one that's going to stick. Right. So, I mean, what can we expect from these stories that look to expand on some of the more popular story arcs? David Crow offers 11 possible paths the network could take. Now, we're going to not talk about all 11, but... How about the children of the forest uniting with the first men? I mean, we know from a season six flashback that the children of the forest created the White Walkers to combat the encroaching settlements of the first men. But have the White Walkers gotten out of control? Well, that seems like it would be a great thing to explore. And uh, the White Walkers in particular, I think, would be ripe for the picking. Yeah. And what of the Stark family? I'd like to see Ned with yeah. his head again. <laughs> a little bit younger, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. And surely fans would rally around a Stark versus Bolton grudge match. There's obviously a lot of history there that seems ripe for development. I mean, wouldn't you like to see Ramsey Bolton as a child? Oh, that'd be cool. I just love yeah. Sean Bean. Is he is he free? <laughs> <laughs> he works a lot, so that's hard to say. Now, you ever wonder why it rains so much in Storm's End? Well, it's apparently because of love. The love of a Durin God's grief, the first Storm King, and Eleni, daughter of the gods who dared fall for a mortal. Now, this sounds like a story straight out of Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. And <laughs> or Tolkien. That, that's, or Tolkien. Lest we forget about the Iron Islands. How about a little Game of Thrones meets Little Mermaid? Hey, sure. <laughs> and though the Grey King ruled over the Iron Islands for over a thousand years, 
the fact that he fell in love with and married a beautiful sea siren is even a more compelling story. And at this point, we know that at least one has been ordered to pilot. Jane Goldman's spinoff set thousands of years ago during the golden age of heroes. But, you know, what else would you like to see? What I would do is first check out David Crow's article, Game of Thrones spinoff, what to expect from the age of heroes, as he considers 11 possibilities for the next phase of George R.R. Martin's fantasy world. I think that's very exciting for Game of Thrones fans who can see the end in sight for their beloved show, and maybe they don't have to see it end. <laughs> so that's great. All right. Well, my first story is going to be about a movie that has really kind of surprised people, but not necessarily the pundits out there. But I am very excited about this particular one because I've enjoyed the movies before it. And that's Ocean's 8, which had a surprising opening weekend. And the headline that David Crow chose for this article, which is Ocean's 8's box office scores defy internet trolls, that kind of pulls in more than just the much much talked about box office success of Ocean's 8, a movie which outperformed Ocean's 11, 12, and 13 in its opening weekend. The movie is inevitably compared to the controversy that surrounds the female-led Ghostbusters and Hollywood's passion for rebooting franchises. So the internet trolls have spoken, but they have been smashed down by the box office take, which is really kind of cool. But crunching the numbers, Ocean's 8 happily met its predicted take. Industry estimates were between 40 and 45 million, according to David Crow, and it made 41.5 million. So just over that mark. This beats the franchise's previous record of 39.6 million for Ocean's 12, although Actually, that's not really adjusted for inflation, so Ocean's 12 might have edged it out a bit. But the movie featuring skilled thieves looking good while pulling off their heist was also helped by a B-plus cinema score, but mostly I think it was positive word of mouth. And I just think it's a lot of fun. I love heist movies, and it's been a while since I've seen one in the theaters. Right, and coming on the heels of the Ghostbusters fiasco, they, they were probably a little bit nervous heading into that premiere weekend. But, you know, as David Crow points out, people flock to the theaters, and so far the, the critics have spoken, and seems like they've got another hit on their hands. Right, and plus there's a few key differences. First of all, Ocean's 8 is not a traditional reboot like Ghostbusters was because it builds on its predecessors, casting Sandra Bullock as Danny Ocean's sister, essentially making it a sequel that just happened to come out 11 years after 2007's Ocean's 13. And also, the Ocean series was always more adult-skewing, and so it doesn't have that aggressive geek culture ostensibly sort of protecting the concept of a collective childhood and nostalgia that Ghostbusters had even though Ocean's Eleven itself is actually a reboot of the 1960s Rat Pack version, but I guess there wasn't quite as much nostalgia attached to that one. But David also notes that Ocean's Eight's timing didn't hurt either because it came out the summer after the Me Too movement, which had people crying out for a change in Hollywood culture for women. And here you've got this great female cast of heavyweights from days gone by. And I think that's another thing. There are a lot of movies that have teams of stars that are coming back from being leading ladies in their younger years. And now they have these great leading roles as more mature women. And I think that that really works to their favor as well. And let's take a listen before we go on to our next story to Sandra Bullock, Helena Bottom Carter and Kate Blanchett, who starred in the movie about their reaction to this opening weekend. It's 
just it takes a lot of pressure off, to be honest. I mean, we had a lot of pressure to begin with, and we tried to let it go and just enjoy ourselves, which we did. It's like a bit historic. No one ever seen a film do this amount of money, I think, with so many women playing leads. Good acting is good acting. You know, a fun film is a fun film. So, I mean, I don't want to brag, but it did more money than the male version. Isn't it bizarre that we, 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 we feel surprised by the fact that, a, you know, a film with women and it does well? So I guess they weren't as surprised as maybe some of the others were, but I know they're happy with her success. And I can't wait to see this movie uh, sooner rather than later. All right. Well, Mike, speaking of sequels, now that nearly 40 years have passed since Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark premiered to audiences worldwide, maybe it's time to consider the cultural influences the films have had, not only on the action film genre, but cultural attitudes as well. So here, Katie Burke, takes a look at three distinct ways that the indie films have impacted pop culture and the film industry. Now, on the one hand, we could argue that the indie franchise laid the groundwork for film franchises in general, but perhaps more importantly is the insertion of the Nazi menace into the film's framework in a relatively benign manner. It's almost funny when we see the, uh, the Nazis in Indiana Jones. Yeah, they're farcically evil. <laughs> yeah. Now, Captain America First Avenger employs this technique, as does Stargate Origins. First Avenger director Joe Johnson told the L.A. Times, we used Raiders as a template when we were developing the story, but we sort of moved away from it as time went on. This is futurism in the 1940s. If you went to 1942 and thought of what the future would be, that's what the approach was. So we went away from the Raiders template in that sense, but where we sort of stuck with it was in the structure and the action and the way the main characters are thrown into these situations and then have to get themselves out of them. I never thought of it this way, but yeah, you're right. The Raiders of the Lost Ark did kind of set the tone for being able to do that in movies. Yeah. Now, Johnson's not alone, as the X-Files creator Chris Carter admitted, sometimes writers and even people who are not writers come up and say, I'm doing what I'm doing because of the X-Files. But I could say that about Apocalypse Now or Indiana Jones. That's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. But the influence goes much further. I mean, it's difficult to ignore the similarities between David Duchovny's portrayal of FBI agent Fox Mulder and Harrison Ford's swashbuckling archaeologist. You know, as mentioned just a minute ago, both constantly get in over their heads. And come on, even their glasses are similar. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So for more on this topic, including a connection to X-Men Apocalypse, check out Katie Burt's article, How Raiders of the Lost Ark Continues to Influence Pop Culture. Well, I, I know that there's actually an episode coming up in the final season of 12 Monkeys where they visit Nazi era Europe. So I'm looking forward to watching that one. I'm guessing that won't be lighthearted, though. <laughs> no, I don't know. You never know. <laughs> With 12 Monkeys, you, you never know. But yeah, it showed up in the preview. But another TV news thing that I want to bring up that also bleeds into book news, and I always like when this pops up, is the ability for TV shows to expand, whether through comics or books, to you know, catch people's attention maybe during the hiatus of their show. And such is the case with Stranger Things, the, the hit show on Netflix. It turns out that Stranger Things is coming to your local bookstore. Penguin, Random House, and Netflix have put together a deal for worldwide distribution of a series of companion novels. And while some titles are for younger readers, one title coming next spring seems particularly intriguing. It's a prequel 
that centers around Eleven's mother and the MK Ultra program, which played a significant part in giving the young girl her powers of the mind. What a great detail to hone in on, Dave, uh, from that show. Well, a- absolutely. And I love the fact that they're going to gear some of the titles to young readers, because, look, as you and I both know so painfully well, kids just don't read anymore. That's right. And because this show has young protagonists, it's built for a children or young adult audience. And in fact, this particular prequel is going to be written by Gwenda Bond, who is known for her body of work in young adult literature, including Girl on a Wire and Lois Lane Fallout, for those of you who enjoy some of the Superman uh, books that are out there. So she's going to write the prequel. And then earlier releases this fall include a behind-the-scenes companion entitled Stranger Things World Turned Upside Down and an as-yet-untitled gift book, which will offer, according to the publisher, advice, wisdom, and warnings from the Stranger Things world. So I like that there's some nonfiction in here as well. Well, I love the warnings part, absolutely. (laughs) So additional books are scheduled for the latter part of 2019, but this initial run is sure to satisfy those waiting for news about Stranger Things Season 3. Although casting news has been enticing with announcements that Carrie Elwes, Jake Busey, and Francesca Reel will be joining the cast, the books will be a nice way to tide fans over until the release date, which we're thinking should also be in early 2019. So the book actually might come out around the same time as the season premiere. But the Stranger Things novel companion series will appear first in the U.S. and then U.K., under the imprints of Delray Books, Random House Children's Books, Cornerstone Publishing, and Penguin Random House Children's UK, with international distribution to follow. So if you want to read more about the Stranger Things prequel, you have to read my article, Stranger Things prequel novel coming in 2019. Yeah, and you know, until I podcasted about the librarians, I really had no idea how huge companion novels really are. And and I was fortunately sent a, a few of the novels that have come out in the last two years so when you get a good writer it just adds so much to the experience we have a podcast here on den of geek from some star wars aficionados and they spend most of their time in what's called the star wars expanded universe which is the books so there's some people that actually spend more time in that arena so yeah it's it's great to be able to come at it from several different angles right now a show that i know you and i both loved and i think we covered it on the monthly den of geek podcast sci-fi fidelity and that is nat geo's mars am i remembering correctly that is correct we did that in one of the earlier uh, episodes in 2017 right and one of the best things about the mars series is that it presents a realistic view of the human race moving from earth to another planet and While science fiction films and TV often gloss over the real problems facing mankind as adventures into space, there are those looking to overcome some of these obstacles. Now here, Alejandro Rojas presents two astronaut interviews conducted by Den of Geek that address that fundamental question, can humans survive in space long term? Now, there's no doubt that former astronaut Scott Kelly is about as qualified as anyone to speak to the problems that man faces as he ventures out into the stars. He spent 340 consecutive days in space, the longest time of any U.S. astronaut during a single mission. And through four missions, Kelly spent 520 cumulative days in space. So let's hear a little bit of that interview that Alejandro Rojas did with Scott Kelly a few weeks ago. So I was in space for 320 days. 
I didn't feel great. But, you know, if I had to perform a certain function, I would have been able to do it. I wouldn't have been happy, but I would have been uh, capable. But going to Mars is 200 days, then you're on the surface of Mars for maybe a year. Mm-hmm. So you're operating in a uh, lesser uh, gravitational field, you know, one-third of the Earth. So I think the physical effects... It's not going to, I don't think my situation is really a good example of the people going to Mars. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was wonderful that we were able to share more of that interview that we featured last time on the G News podcast. So this one took a different angle about the survivability of man in space. And I love that he can be so frank about it and honest about it because it has had an effect on him. Yeah. I mean, is the colonization of Mars a realistic endeavor? Well, Kelly says, If we're talking about Mars as an example, whether we go back to the moon or not first, Mars is the next logical step as a species leaving Earth. I think we have a lot of the technology we need to do that mission. I think over the course of the life of the space station, we've learned a lot about humans living and working in space. Now, Kelly's medical and health issues have been well documented. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And even though his experiences as a fighter pilot somewhat prepared him for the extreme conditions present in space, the former astronaut is paying the price. He said, every part of my body hurts, he describes in his book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. All of my joints and all of my muscles are protesting the crushing pressure of gravity. So there are obstacles out there, but we've got a lot of brilliant people working on them. Yeah, and we definitely honor Scott Kelly's <laughs> sacrifice in a way of allowing his body to be punished so that we can learn more and, and move forward. Right. And for more about this fascinating topic, including an interview with Peggy Whitson, the U.S. astronaut who currently holds the record for most cumulative days in space, check out Alejandro Rojas's article, Can Humans Survive in Space Long Term? All right. Can't wait to read that one. And Uh, From nonfiction back into the reboot arena, (laughs) this is one of the ones that I'm kind of a little skeptical about because it comes from my own uh, viewing in my youth, and that's Eon Flux, which Joseph Baxter writes an article that it's getting a live action reboot on MTV, which originally aired the animated series. Now, Eon Flux was a big part of my post-high school awakening to styles of animation outside of Saturday morning cartoons. And I know a lot of people grew up with anime. I did not. In fact, I did later 
in college watch movies like Akira and I had never seen such things before and I loved it. But the adult themes in those movies and also in the MTV series were new to me in, in the animated world. So I have to wonder if a live action version will be able to capture that same magic, even though the sci-fi elements are right up my alley. You know, it's something that I kind of have maybe a rosy picture of through the lens of nostalgia. Can you believe I actually showed Akira to my 10th graders for several years? Now, this was back in my youth. <laughs> that must have been in the 80s or, oh, yes, or it was. a different era. <laughs> it was a different era. Yes. Never do that now. Yeah. Well, MTV is bringing in Jeff Davis, who helmed the hit series Teen Wolf on that network. And he's also known for creating Criminal Minds. But also Gail Ann Hurd is producing the series. And although she's known for her involvement in The Walking Dead, she's come on as this you know producer that lifts different people up to see if their project will work. And that hasn't always worked for Gail. Her other genre strikeouts were Falling Water on USA and Hunters on Sci-Fi, both of which we talked about on Sci-Fi Fidelity, and then they were quickly canceled. But she did produce the 2005 film adaptation of Eon Flux, which starred Charlize Theron. But that's not very encouraging either, because it didn't exactly wow viewers. But... This original Eon Flux, which was created by Korean animator Peter Chung from MTV's Liquid Television, is set in a dystopia of the far future of 7698, in which most of the world's population has been wiped out by environmental catastrophe, leaving only two major city-states. And the series focuses on the stylistically ultra-violent exploits of its scantily clad titular assassin, who, when not capturing flies with her eyelashes, which is that trademark image from Eon Flux, stealthily battles the forces of an oppressive dictator who also happens to be her sometime lover, interestingly enough. But Joseph says it will be interesting to see if Eon Flux can finally work in a live action capacity, especially with the 2005 dud of a movie serving ignominiously as the only attempt. Chung's animated series was groundbreaking stuff, seemingly building upon the thematic focus of the renegade animation found in efforts like 1981's Heavy Metal except put through a stylized cyberpunk lens that in 1991 was considered mind-blowing, and it certainly was for me in that time of my life. The chaotic, anarchic visuals failed to translate on screen in the 2005 film, and its mistakes could easily be replicated in the upcoming series. And that's my worry, actually. Should it fail to brandish a razor-sharp focus on aesthetics and madcap characters? So I'm wishing this reboot the best, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic, or maybe I should say, hopefully pessimistic <laughs> about the success of the show, but we'll see if there's more news to come. But in the meantime, if you want to read more about this uh, reboot, the article is Eon Flux live action TV series reboot set for MTV by Joseph Baxter. And now we'll go ahead and go into a TV interview as well. For those of you who have been enjoying BBC America's Killing Eve. And if you haven't, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I don't make much room in my viewing schedule for non-genre fare, but this spy thriller is amazing. And, and the main characters and the, and the female characters especially are just spot on. And one of those great female leads, which we talked about in a G News article last month, is Fiona Shaw, who's probably known to most moviegoers as Petunia Dursley from the Harry Potter movies and to most TV watchers as Marnie Stonebrook from True Blood. 
but I first witnessed her talents in the first season of Channel Zero on Sci-Fi, where she played a very warped Marla painter. And in fact, I mentioned this to her at the very beginning of the interview, and she thought that was quite interesting. Now she just finished wrapping up her starring role as Carolyn Martin's the spy who loves Russians but hates small talk in BBC America's Killing Eve with the season one finale of this wonderfully dark but comedic thriller just finishing up recently. We wanted to ask Fiona about what we could expect to see from her character in the future. Hello, Michael. Hello, Fiona. Thanks for joining me today and talking about Killing Eve, one of my favorite shows this year. <laughs> one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I've, I would venture to say that this might be the only time you've been interviewed by someone whose uh, first exposure to your wonderful acting was actually season one of Channel Zero, rather than oh Harry Potter. Or, or <laughs> you are a rare person in the world, and how lovely to speak. I can't. I, mean, I know we're not, we're not here to talk about Channel Zero, but I adored that because I spent some time in Canada, and every time I wasn't shooting, I went out and explored Canada and those fucking wonderful lakes it was the most wonderful few weeks oh for sure yeah i really loved it now you've explored all kinds of genres with harry potter and true blood and emerald city but killing eve is is a spy thriller and one with a very unconventional vision so what's been your favorite part of doing this show that that phoebe waller bridge put together being asked to be in it (laughs) (laughs) But also, I think because I was so delighted that finally there was something that was neither goofy nor silly nor, you know, crazy, but actually pure intelligence. You know, I just, that was such a phenomenal gift to be asked to play this brain. And uh, I was very delighted. Suddenly my philosophy degree came into play or, (laughs) you know, my... I've played such huge classical roles of tragedy and comedy that to be allowed to play the stillness of someone who's inscrutable was really, really, really a great pleasure. Oh, and that's a good point, because one of the things that was interesting about Carolyn Martin's uh, going into the series was that all we really initially knew about her was that Elena looked up to her as a Cold War legend. Yeah. And maybe she wasn't really a big fan of small talk, but that's about all we knew. So do you think we were being set up to be kind of complacent with Carolyn at first because there was later that contrast in Moscow with Eve and it made it that much more noticeable. So Yeah, I suppose the wonderful thing about the writing is that you never know which way it's going to turn. And I suppose the key to it was that when anything was written in Moscow that was so contrary to anything it would seen, I thought I'll really just play this. I'll play it. Just go with it. So they were all delighted that we went so far with it. But why not? Because the one thing you can learn about humans is that they can have many sides to them. So so having spent, you know, four episodes very uptight to have a few glasses of wine in Moscow and turn into a complete mad flirt <laughs> was a delight. And I think was also somehow very wise because it means that the, the series just changes all the time, doesn't it? It just changes all the time, but somehow holds itself tight in its plot. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes at the very end when Eve asks her what happened in the hotel room and she said, what do you mean? (laughs) As everything is in disarray. (laughs) You mean that the place is so untidy? Yes. Yeah, I I, I mean, it's full of those surprises, isn't it? You you assume when a person behaves in one way that they are such a person and then you discover they're a completely different person. But that's as in life, isn't it? It really is as in life. No, for sure. Yeah. And part of Carolyn seeming detached is also made that much more surprising when it turns out that Kenny is her son, yeah. which he wasn't initially introduced as such. So 
with Eve taking Kenny down a rabbit hole of suspicion there towards the end, there must be some kind of strain there. So how would you characterize Carolyn's relationship with Kenny? Well, they both seem to have a slight, perhaps spectrum-like behavior. (laughs) So (laughs) they are related in that um, they don't ever speak to each other. I never touch him. And uh, that's been very interesting to play, that I never really touch him. I mean, he's an adult son, but there's nothing gooey about them as a mother and son. I mean, it makes you wonder about his upbringing. You know, did they ever speak at all or did they just sort of do homework and <laughs> <laughs> he used homework and then just, you know, go to bed and say goodbye, mom. Um, she clearly has had a few husbands so that Kenny is not brought up necessarily by who his father was. But I just so enjoy this relationship. Of, it's something very British, too. It's it's taking Britishness to its ultimate that is almost a sort of, uh, as I say, slightly spectrum behavior. You know, it's almost autism. They just are very logical people. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because Kenny obviously is very talented at what he does, but there's a sense in the finale that she gave him that job and that she can take it away just as easily. And so he has to stand on she his own two that, feet. Yeah. yeah. She says, go home, doesn't she? She just says, go home. I think she's disappointed with him and crosses him that he, he was mistrusting her, of course. But she's not in another way because she can't be surprised at that because the evidence was there that, that Karen was not behaving entirely well. But people behave literally contrarily in the series in a way that they really don't in any other series. And yet the genius is somehow there is a consistency in who they are. That's true. That's true. It's it's cryptic, but at the same time consistent. Yeah. I mean, it's not random. And yet you're always surprised by what they do. But I think some of it, I mean, I really enjoy this Karen's mind dropping onto seemingly non-secretaries like, you know, the there was a rat drinking out of that Coca-Cola can. <laughs> yeah. Why would somebody mention it? Why would somebody notice it? And why would somebody bother <laughs> to say it? Um, there's something about the very mind. It tells you everything about the mind. She doesn't tell you anything about the real vast rooms that are her mind. You just get these tiny little bits of drivel that are on the surface. But it hints at something much like a, a, an ocean underneath. Well, one of the things I'm wondering about is whether or not there was a strategy in Carolyn having recruited Eve, knowing how defiant she would be, or perhaps she didn't realize that. And and now that things are out of control, that's why she closed the London office. So how much strategy was involved in Carolyn recruiting Eve? Oh, I think it was just, she just, I think it is exactly as you saw in the plot. She notices that Eve seems to have an instinctive gift for this stuff. And also that Possibly Eve gave the same answer she thought. She probably thought it was a woman who had done this killing of this man early on, and nobody else did. So it's a talent, isn't it, for lateral thinking and also a sort of instinctive thing. And so I think Karen took her on on instinct. She didn't know what she was getting entirely and then begins to learn who she's got. And she can't control her. I mean, slowly during the season, you see that Eve begins to pull away from Carolyn, having been her obedient servant for a while. She then begins to pull away, and Karen doesn't like that at all. Well, in some ways, I feel like the suspicions that are out there that Carolyn might be part of the Twelve herself is kind of belied by the fact that she did recruit Eve, because why would she do that otherwise, (laughs) you know? Well, 
of course, you're dead right to think that. There are lots of shades of things as you go along that would... Kim Bodron's character, is he, is he higher up the, the, the list of the 12 or not? And who are the 12? And in what way are, they, are the 12 really the 12? Or does it refer to something, a one person? Or does it refer to you know, a Wizard of Oz? Or does it refer to an actual whole series of people that might include the Pope and various heads of government around the world or the UN? I mean, we just don't know who the 12 are. Well, in that sense, I have I have to congratulate you on getting season two because now we'll hopefully have some of those questions answered, right? I think you probably. I mean, I I hope you don't get them all answered. I hope that won't happen till season three. That was my <laughs> aim, but uh, and that nothing harmful happens to any of us. But I think it will um, certainly have to go up a notch, won't it? A bit like a, a one of those kids' games, you know, it'll have to go into the next dimension. Uh, we'll have to get closer. But uh, I think, isn't it the, I don't know what you feel as a viewer, but I'm I'm as much of a viewer when I, I've watched the sections I've watched as, as anyone, that it is astounding how impolite the thing is, isn't it? It's not polite. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. It indulges in anger a bit. Yeah, well, it, it indulges in not, con- you, you realize how conforming we are even when we don't think we are, because when Villanelle particularly behaves in this way, an amorality that is, would be very unaccepted in any um, decent society where you make love to people and kill them or tell them you're going to kill them and then you seduce them and then you kill them. It is absolutely obscene. And yet somehow the line of wit just protects you from, from believing it in a way that is distasteful, if not illegal. <laughs> oh, for sure. But I think what one thing we come away from Killing Eve season one with is the sense that we have the two female leads in Jodie Comer and Sandra Oh, but we also have a third lead here in Carolyn Martins and embodied by Fiona Shaw. So I'm very grateful that we got to meet your character and have you on the show. Well, I'm glad and I hope you'll enjoy more of it. <laughs> well, thanks for talking to us today about Killing Pleasure. Eve. It's been a pleasure. Good. Bye-bye. All right. So there's some great speculation about this uh, great character that Fiona Shaw uh, wonderfully embodied in Killing Eve. And she was a great interview and had a lot of fun talking to her. So we hope you enjoyed that interview. But that's it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the June 2018 late edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite television shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.